You are listening to HHS bonus content from the Hillbilly Horror Stories Network. This bonus content is released during the week for your listening pleasure while awaiting the release of Sunday's actual Hillbilly Horror Stories episode. All bonus content will be listed as HHS Presents or HHS Midweek while the actual Hillbilly Horror Stories episodes will have only an episode number and the title listed, for example, 187, The Kentucky Vampires. Those episodes are a longer deep dive into a particular subject. If you are new to the show and the bonuses aren't your style, get the full-length episode to try. Enjoy. Hey guys, welcome to episode 28 of the Midweek Episodes. This is going to be a good one. Yahoo! So today, we have one of the, I'm going to say pioneers of the cryptozoology. Yes. Who is it, Tracy? It is the one and only Linda Godfrey. I'm so excited. As I told Linda when I was talking to her about this. I said, when I think cryptozoology, I immediately think of Linda Godfrey and Lauren Coleman. Mm-hmm. They're, they're the two that are their icons of what they do. So I was so excited to be able to get her on. And, uh, you know, we did this interview like literally three or four weeks ago. So mm-hmm. I've, I've just been waiting and waiting and waiting. But I, I knew it was fantastic from the minute we did it. So oh, I'm yeah. so anxious to be able to let everybody hear this. Yes, yeah, so much good information. She's just a delight to listen to. Yeah, she's a case, buddy. And for those of you who are listening that don't know, if you've probably heard of the Beast of Bray Road, we've done that. She is the one who wrote the original newspaper article. Then mm-hmm. she wrote the book, and she is the one that gave the name the Beast of Bray Road. Yeah. So that's all That's all her. Plus, she's got like 17 other books. There's like 18 books total. But she talks a little bit about some paranormal experiences she had as a child. She talks about the Beast of Bray Road, of course, and some, some other... Uh, books that she's written so you're not going to want to miss this one tune into this one even if you don't like some of the interviews i bet you like this one yeah all right our paranormal story that we're going to do today is from the neck of the woods that we plan on moving to down the road okay so today we're going to tell you about a 165 year old house in florida that is the home of the hernando heritage museum today okay it said that eight ghosts roam this building It was added to the National Register of Historic Places on March 8th of 1977. So it's been around for a while, yeah. And Mm -hmm. it's it's been notated that it's a historical landmark for what we're looking at 33 years or something now. Mm -hmm. So a little history. In 1855, a contractor by the name of John L. May, he bought some land in Brooksville, Florida. Now, Brooksville, Brooksville is a small town, so I got about 7,500 people. So oh, that's here. it? Yeah, it's a small town. It's in the Tampa, St. Pete, Clearwater area. So John May built this home for his family that consisted of his wife, Marina, their daughter, Matilda, and Annie. Now, this was a very simple four-room house originally. Unfortunately, John May would pass away of tuberculosis three short years after building the house oh how sad it gets worse oh so marina lived in the house all the way throughout the civil war and she even married a confederate hero by the name of frank saxon so marina became pregnant but died in 1869 while giving childbirth oh my goodness the baby a little girl by the name of jesse may Survived, but passed away three years later of unknown causes. What the heck? 
And Jesse May. Oh, I love that name. Mother and daughter were both buried on the property. Now, Marina had also given birth prior to, to her Matilda? death to another, no, another little oh. boy to uh, Frank Saxon. Okay. So the Matilda and Annie were both from her previous husband. Oh. So before she had died here, she had given birth to a little boy that was stillborn, unfortunately. Oh, my gosh. God he, bless her heart. He was also buried on the property. And then John May, her first husband, was buried on the property. So on this property, we've got John May, we've got Marina, we've got Jesse May, and the unborn child that they mm-hmm. had. So there's four different people yeah. all buried on this property from that extended family. After baby Jesse's death, Frank Sexton, I'm sorry, Saxton, sold the property. Eventually, the property would end up in the hands of Dr. Sheldon Stringer, thus the May Stringer house. He had a wife of three and three children. He added immediately ten rooms to the house. So he took a little four-room house and made it into a mansion, basically. Dr. Stringer also ran his medical practice out of the house. Some even say that he ran a sanatorium as well, catering those victims of smallpox and yellow fever out of his house. Oh, dang. I think you need to separate some of that stuff. Yeah, I would think so. So after the death of the Stringers, some years later, the home was sold and bought several times. But in 1980, the Hernando Historical Museum Association bought the the, uh, the mansion and they started uh, doing some restoration on it. And they did some extensive restoration to get it back to where mm-hmm. it was back in its heyday. So let's get to the, some spooky stuff. That's That's what most people care about. Most of the paranormal activity here started during the restoration once the museum bought it. One of the guides at the museum uh, back a few years ago, Bonnie Letourneau, said that volunteers during the restoration would hear footsteps and they would also hear voices in empty rooms. The construction workers would see mists and eerie shadows. They would also hear the sound of child's laughter throughout the uh, entire building, even though this was a work site mm-hmm. at the time and a construction site, there were no children Kids, on right. the premises. The guides today, they still report moving shadows, glowing orbs of light, and a crying child. Most seem to think that the child ghost is that of Jessie May. They think that she's crying out of her, crying out for her mother that she never got the opportunity to know. Aww. There's a doll on display that's thought to be, to you know, it's rumored that it belonged to Jessie May as a child. It's definitely an antique. There was at one point in time where they were going to take, they took the doll out of its cradle that it normally sits in to be appraised. Because like Mm -hmm. I said, it's an antique. When the workers went back to put the doll back, the cradle was in pieces (gasps) and was strewn all over the floor. Why? I guess maybe whoever the entity was was pissed that they took the doll away. Oh. So anyway, the... the, I thought you were just going to say the construction workers did it. (laughs) No, this was was after the fact. This was more recent than that. Oh, okay. Because that was back in 1980 with all the construction workers. Oh, that's true. See, the people that worked there, they put the cradle all back together, and they put the doll back where it belonged. And nothing, Nothing's really happened about like that since. So some paranormal investigators, they love this house, and they think it's one of the most haunted locations in the whole state of Florida. So besides Jesse May's ghost, it's also thought to be haunted by Marina, a shooting victim, which I couldn't find any more information on, and some of Dr. Stringer's patients. There's also 
a very mean spirit that goes by the name Mr. Nasty. Mr. Nasty? Yeah, I don't think he gave himself that name. I think they gave it to him. What the heck? Well, supposedly Mr. Nasty's thought to be a soldier who hung himself in the attic after finding out that his fiance was cheating on him. Ugh. So because of his fiance's betrayal, he apparently hates women. And that's what he tends to go after. Yeah. Who are in there. As a matter of fact, one paranormal group had to cut their investigation short after some women in the group became deathly ill. No kidding. Yeah. So. Wow, there is a lot there. Yeah, that's a little quick story on the Maystringer house. Well, you know, wouldn't it be amazing? Wouldn't you just love to get a house from back in the day like that and own it? And just kind of rebuild. I just think that would be so awesome to do. Just to think back all of those hundreds of years or whatever it is of the people that lived there and all that. I just think it would be so cool to do. I would rather just visit those houses and think about how cool it is and not have to do all that work. Well, I know, but... I I'm, mean, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm not really into old houses. You're not? No. I mean, I like to look at them. I don't want to live in them. Jerry, what in the world? That's just me. I'm not into classic cars. I mean, oh, I kind of like the looks of well, them, but I don't I mean, like the that's, interiors. I'm that's not a, true, but I would just love, I would love to live in an old house A lot like of that. them old houses, to me, don't seem homey. They usually have the really tall ceilings. They really, And to me, that's just not homey. But I also wouldn't want to live in a modern house that was really huge. I mean, I wouldn't want to live in a, in a 10,000 square foot house. No, I, I, just, I mean, I wouldn't I just, either. I just, that's not me. Well, no, because that's not homey. Yeah. You know, you're in one section of the house and somebody's on the other wing and that's not the same. I just think these old houses are just completely amazing. And I would love to. I would love it. Yeah, I just see I see a lot of these houses and I think they're kind of cool looking. But and I just think it's just because if you live in one, you think about the history of the people that used to live there. I think that's just, I mean, it's so interesting. Well, I mean, we can look think about the history of the people who live at our house now, even though it was just like 15 years ago. No, that's <laughs> not the same. No. I'm talking about a long time ago. What's like in old Louisville? Them houses are expensive. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's people, people will spend $300,000. And I know for some people are thinking, well, that's not expensive, depending on where you live. Yeah. You know, like I know we talk to people who live up in Toronto. It's like 600,000 apparently is like the average house just because. And in in California, 600,000 doesn't get you much. But if you think about this, um, in Louisville, the average house is probably a hundred and thirty thousand, hundred fifty thousand. Mm-hmm. So it's it's you know the cost of living is just different in the Midwest as opposed to what it is in some yeah, places. Yeah. So you picture when I tell you a three hundred thousand dollar house in a place like California, that would be a one point four, one point five million dollar house. Yeah. Oh, so definitely. that's so think about it from from that standpoint. But you know, I can buy a house in Louisville. My uncle bought a house that is. Brand new, stick build, probably 2,500 square feet, not counting the full finished basement. So when that's finished, it's going to be probably 3,500 square feet. And it's got every modern convenience and straight up beautiful. And he paid 300000 I think 330000 for Gorgeous, gorgeous house. It's absolutely gorgeous. $330,000 for it. And so when I say that, I know what I can get for that money. Yeah. And then these houses in Old Louisville, you'll buy one for that much. And it's just, it's they're all right next to each other because it's downtown. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the houses, they're fixer-uppers for that mm-hmm. money. Mm-hmm. Those aren't like, hey, this is beautiful. This is like, let's move you in. Gotta, this yeah. is like, you got to do a lot of work to this, and yeah. it's over three. So I mean, by the time you put, you probably got to put another hundred fifty thousand into it just to make it, you mm-hmm. know, a really nice house. So yeah, that's that's what I'm talking about. That's mm-hmm. for me. I, that's not my my cup of tea. Yeah. 
But we're we're going on about the real estate market when we should be listening to Linda Godfrey. Well, let's listen to Linda. All right. Here comes Linda after this brief commercial break. Hey, guys, I know I always say I have a special guest on, but this guest really is special to me because she is an actual legend in the field as far as I'm concerned. We've got author, investigator, artist, screenwriter, so many other things we can, we can throw out their accolades for. She's got 18 books out, including Weird Michigan, Monsters Among Us, Real Wolfman, which is True Encounters in Modern America, and, of course, the Beast of Bray Road, which we'll talk about a little more in details, because she did break the original story of The Beast of Bray Road. Please, let's welcome Miss Linda Godfrey to the show. Linda, thank you so much for coming on. Well, hello. Thanks so much for having me, and, and for all your listeners sitting there. So let me jump right into this, Linda. I don't know how much time I got you for, so I'm going to take it full advantage of it, if that's fine with you. Okay, doc. <laughs> okay, so I want to get into, right off the bat, you've got 18 books. One of these books, though, is the God Johnson book. It is actually a little different than the other 17. Tell me a little bit about that book. Yeah, this is a fiction book. My other ones are all nonfiction this one, I actually dreamed the premise for it. I had this dream, and I woke up in bed and said, holy cow, I've got to write that. And it's the story of, and I actually, you know, there there are a couple, I think there's even a TV show out called Lesser Gods with a, with a, a smaller G, whatever. This was way before, because it took me a long time to write it and get it out in between all the other books. So I actually wrote this before those those books, but it's a story of a lesser deity that is not believed in anymore, and so he's, it's kind of like Jiminy Cricket and Pinocchio, you know, where the fairy has to make you believe in it, mm-hmm. or they have to believe to make the fairy see a lot. That's kind of how it is, but he gets this idea that, you know, maybe he doesn't have the right looks for attracting um, disciples, and so he does some research and comes up with Lincoln, uh, President Lincoln being the most loved and revered man of of uh, United States history, and so he presents himself as Abraham Lincoln, and so he gets one disciple, and she's kind of a naive uh, person and doesn't realize what she's in for until it's too late, and then it's just uh, kind of a, uh, a wild ride from there. That sounds like a fun book right there. Thanks. I think it is. It's got a lot of good reviews, and like I said earlier when we were talking, I've had a lot more people viewing it, so I, I'm glad for that because I wrote it for people to have some some fun with. Now we talk about that one being a little different than what the others are, but also your very first book really didn't involve, you know, cryptids and paranormal and and stuff like that. It was a little more of a true crime book. Tell me a little bit about that one. Yeah, that's, I call it the different kind of monster, you know, and there are a couple of TV shows on where they use the word monster to refer to human beings that are murderers or commit really evil things. And that was the case here because I found it accidentally right after I had started working for newspaper as a reporter. Oh, actually, it was this one was actually a few uh, years in. I had already encountered the Beast of Bray Road story. So this was about, I found it because I was assigned to look for Ku Klux Klan stories in the 1920s because they were coming to our county. And so the newspaper wanted some early press on them. And I'm looking through these old newspapers in the 1920s, and I keep seeing these titles, sordid, shocking, woman confesses, you know, that kind of thing. And mm-hmm. so naturally I was reading them all, and I realized there was a huge major nationally known crime that occurred and was tried in Walworth County, Wisconsin, in the around 1923, I think it was. And it was this woman who she and her husband 
were perfect little church-going people. He had a little dairy, and she, they took in college students from the town White, of Whitewater, where, where they lived. And she and one of the students had a thing, it turned out, and between the two of them, they murdered her husband with strychnine, which is a horrible way to go. It's very, very painful. And they, they managed that. And then the student decided he did not want to be daddy to her four wonderful, beautiful children. So the next plan was to kill all the children. And they were going to do that with strychnine, too. But she got caught in a very interesting way. The weird thing is that I was writing this. As I was writing it, I kept finding synchronicities to my own life. For instance, the, the prosecutor who finally figured out the whole crime was a godfrey. He and my husband turned out to be related. He, that gentleman was passed on, but they were from the same rootstock. They were kind of like second cousins, I think. So there was that, and then there was another child involved who had a, a big part of the story. I was telling her about the book, and she said, I was there. I was part of that. It turned out she was the daughter of the murderer's playmate and the, the murderer had had to get get the child to go home that night and the child did not want to go home she wanted to stay and play so she was a big part she was my next door neighbor you know and things kept happening like that so i researched that for five or six years i didn't think anybody would want a book about werewolves because <laughs> this was like in the late 80s and into the early 90s it wasn't exactly a household word at that time but I found a regional publisher that I submitted it to because it was true true historical crime. And I, I had like 500 pages of court messages and, and writings. You know, I had to go out to cemeteries in February and, and scrape snow and ice off the, the headstones with my bare hands to read things that I needed to find out. So it was probably the best research lesson that I could have taken. And the publisher loved it. And then they said, well, what if, what else have you got? And that's what I said. I think my exact words were, well, would you believe werewolves? <laughs> and you can just imagine the look I got. But when I explained it, and I wasn't originally intending, and, and, I, and I didn't write a book that was just like a, here, let me scare you with these stories, monster type of thing. I, what I wanted to do was put the whole thing in context so that people would have an accurate record of what appeared, how it developed, how it impacted the townspeople, merchants, all kinds of social background things like that that were fascinating, His, local history that contributed to it, all those things so that people could get not just a scary story out of out of place, a one-off, but set into the the world that it inhabited at the time and, how, and document how all these people felt about it because... You know, I, I felt it was going to be a little bit more than a campfire story, and that was really true. Tell me about your first, I'm not going to say encounter, but tell me about the, the first run-in you had with a story from the Beast of Bray Road. What brought you to the point where you said, you know what, there's so much going on here, this needs to be written down? Yeah, um, well, there was a woman who had, she was a bus driver in town, but she also freelanced little little story clips to the newspaper every once in a while. I didn't know her really well, but she, really not at all beforehand, but she got a hold of me at the newspaper and said she'd heard a rumor um, about something in Elkhorn, which was uh, where I was. I lived there for 30 years, and she said, you won't believe it really, but people are saying that they saw what they're calling a werewolf. And I'm like, what? You know, it just was so out there. It was like the, the least expected thing that I, anybody could have said to me to write a story on. 
And she said, yeah. She said, because a couple of people on the bus, there was a high school girl on the bus, the school bus that she drove, and she was talking about it with somebody. The woman checked with the girl's mother, and that all checked out. And I talked to another friend of mine who lived in town who had a, a, a high school daughter. I guess the first people really talking about it were high schoolers, which made me a little suspicious. Right. <laughs> and all of this felt like coincidence at the time, but now thinking back, it always seems like it just sort of fell logically into place or it was meant to be this way. But it so happened that one of the first stories I was writing for that newspaper when they hired me, and it would have been late fall, early December of 1991, was the story about the county animal control officer was doing a couple of sting operations. One was on puppy mills where people were, you know, growing large amounts of poorly fed Mm-hmm. And, and sick puppies. And the other one was about finding mutilated dogs and other animals buried around the county in these plastic bags, which was pretty gross and weird. And, and also illegal trapping. There was kind of a whole melee of mistreated animal things that, that were going together. So I had gone to his office and to talk about these things. And we got done kind of checking over the subjects I just mentioned. I thought, well, if anybody knows anything about creatures out on that highway, it should be him. So I got up my nerve and I asked and I said, has anybody asked you about some kind of weird creature out on Bray Road outside of Elkhorn? And he looked at me and he pulled open the desk drawer and reached and pulled out this just an ordinary manila file folder. But the file folder was marked werewolves. Mm. And, <laughs> and now that I, I remember my eyes were probably kind of bugging open because, you know, it, I was thinking, wow, this is exciting. And I was also thinking, oh, man, now I'm going to have to write about it. Because when you've got a county official of any kind with a manila file folder in his official desk and it's marked werewolves, <laughs> that's a, that's news. Yes, you know, is. you have to write that. People need to know what's happening in our county offices, right? At least I, I think so. He handed it to me, and it was full of pieces of paper, and they weren't even exactly like forms, but reports people had written down and mailed to him or called him with, all of them giving their names and their contact numbers and things like that. And that, that was one of the first things that struck me as, hmm, maybe there's something to this, because let's say you're planning to pull a big trick. You know, and you, you want to fool some county officials or something like that. And you your first thing, do you give them all of your contact information and your name? Not typically. Not typically, no, because you don't want to get hauled in if, for fraud or, or something like that. So I thought, well, that's unusual. And then when I started looking through them, I realized that, you know, it wasn't a couple of high school kids. It was a very diverse group of people. There was like a middle-aged factory worker. There were those couple of kids, but then there were also farmers, professionals, blue-collar, white-collar. There was some racial diversity. It was a really mixed bag of people. And, yes, yeah, some of them knew each other in passing. Like when you live in a very small town, you kind of see people and you get to know or know who a lot of people are, but you don't really know them. So that was at most what was going on there. It wasn't like they all got, could have gotten together in some big group and planned this. And how weird would that be anyway? Right. You know, I, so none, none of that made sense in any other way. So I talked to the editor, and, and he agreed, yes, and I started interviewing them. And we we printed that story. By the time I, I turned it in and it got edited and everything, I think I only had like one night to draw a sketch of it because I actually started working at that office as a cartoonist and illustrator for them. And the, the, even just being the reporter was sort of a fluke because it, it happened that I was in there one day. One of the reporters had just quit and the 
editor just said offhand, oh, you, would you want to be a reporter? And I said, sure. And then he was stuck with me. So <laughs> I hadn't re- really been planning on either one of those things. It was just that to me, it was it was terribly interesting because I did not think that it was a werewolf. I really did not think it was Lon Chaney, you know, sprouting whiskers and getting gnarly muscles all over him and that kind of thing, or, or eating people. You know, there weren't any missing people at the time or anything like that. So I didn't think it was a real werewolf, but I thought, well, it could be, you know, one person playing a, tr- but I didn't really think so. And mitigating against that was the fact that these sightings had been going on for a number of years, at least eight or eight or nine years at the time, and I found out even longer. So that made what what hoaxer is going to keep something like that up for eight or nine years? Right. All over the you know running around all over the place. So there were those things, and I just thought, you know, there's just too much to this to throw it away, and. And the editor agreed, and, and we both said, well, you know, people will have fun with it. At least it, it it may be just a campfire story. It may be there's some sort of a dog or animal that is injured and it's forced to walk on its hind legs because that can happen. And actually, just an animal walking on its hind legs is not a supernatural occurrence. Any mammal can walk on its hind legs if it needs to or is trained to. You know, the, the, the Internet's full of things like that. Mm-hmm. So, it, you know, it didn't seem that far out. And I thought if there was a hurt animal that was maybe preying on, if they had little children out or something like that, I would want to know that if I were living out there. So seemed like a lot of good reasons to publish it. Plus, it was New Year's Eve weekend, so there wasn't much else going on anyway. And lo and behold, we printed that thing. It sold out completely over the weekend, which was something that they'd never had happen before. And then that next week when we came back to work, the phone just started ringing. And I always have to explain to people, to young people who are in the groups that we had these things called telephones that you had to physically dial with your finger. And that's where the little dial sign comes from on on your computer. (laughs) People don't realize the communications were more difficult then. That's my point. And so people actually had to look up the newspaper number and call or write snail mail, but we started getting deluged, and all the area, Madison and Milwaukee's TV stations and radio stations started coming. They came out to the newspaper. Nobody could get their work done because we had these reporters hanging around. Then one of the early Inside Edition hosts came up, Bill O'Reilly, I think it was, was the host for the Inside Edition. All kinds, it was it was hitting TV, and it just, there was a weekend right at, the weekend right after that happened that, uh, I mean, I couldn't get in the bathtub or, you know, walk out of my house. I was on solid phone calls, and it was flabbergasting. We never, ever expected that, and I'll tell you what, that was not my planned career, and even then, I wrote for the newspaper for 10 years. I only published a couple of little catch-ups type of articles because I kept thinking, well, surely people aren't going to retain interest in this but they did. I, and I mean, I even one time tried to foist off all my files to the Elkhorn Library, and they got sick of so many people coming in after them. So I, t- I had to take them back. <laughs> and, and I thought, and by then, well, 10 years had gone by, and it was a really great newspaper to work for, and I loved it. It was a great training ground. But I had the, this book about the Poison Widow, and I had this book about the the uh, Bray Road Beast, which is my title. I, I coined that name for it. And I thought, if I don't write these books, I'm going to just kick myself into eternity. And, you know, why didn't you write the book? Because they both had taken, and I by that time I had completed most of the uh, investigation for The Poison Widow, which, I, again, was, was quite lengthy. So I wrote those books. When the book came out, it just started the whole thing over again for The Beast of Bray Road, only more so. That led to hunting the American werewolf. And somehow in there, a couple of publishers saw 
saw the work and asked me to author and co-author the Weird Wisconsin and then the Weird Michigan books by Barnes & Noble that are still out there and in print. I can't believe how long-lived those have been. And then the other books just sort of naturally kept following. I did a little box set for some kind of junior scholastic books type of thing in, in New York. That was one of the ones included in those 18. There were three volumes to that one with Rosemary Guiley that some of you may know, the wonderful dear friend of mine who was doing these things before I was and who passed away not all that long ago. So that was kind of how it got going. But like I said, it, it was never, you know, as a child, I never sat there thinking, oh, I hope that someday I can write novels and real nonfiction about werewolves. You know, <laughs> that just never, never came into my head. I was interested in other things. I did live in a haunted house at one time. My dad was into aliens because he was from far northern Wisconsin and he was with some buddies and sitting in the back of a truck, and a, a light followed them for a long ways. And he would only get that far in the story, and then he would never, he'd just clam up and wouldn't talk about it anymore. So I was interested in that. But because of that, he had all those, those 60s men's magazines about hunting, fishing, and there were the first stories of, and about the Bigfoot. They were, I think Bigfoot was really popularized by Sanderson and some of these early researchers. And so I had read about Bigfoot, and that I knew, didn't know exactly what I thought of it for sure, but I, so I did have some interest in those things. I don't tell this one too often because people kind of tend to look askance at it, but when I was about 13, I had a picture in my room that breathed, or at least it made breathing sounds. I don't know how else to explain it. We were living in a 100-year-old house, and I had for a 4-H project. If, for those of you who don't know what 4-H <laughs> Yes, it was kind of like a boys and girls club for farm kids. And the town I lived in was so small that it had the farm kids and the city kids, city in parentheses, uh, all went to 4-H. It was like our most fun thing to do. We just really, really liked it. And I took a project where I had to frame a picture of some kind. And my mom took me into the next bigger town, which was Janesville. And there's a print shop there to get the print for. And there was it was a Civil War era lady who kind of had her, one of her hands kind of to her chin. And this real kind of Mona Lisa expression. And I really liked it. I took that home and I had this big fancy antique frame that my mom also dug up somewhere for me to, to man it and frame it. And I wanted a blue ribbon on it and came back and hung it in my tiny, tiny bedroom in that house. So I had six younger brothers and sisters. So true, there were a lot of people in that house who were sleeping and that sort of thing. But it would happen every single night. Everyone would go to sleep and then I would wake up and this picture on my wall would start going, <gasps> like that, at each breath. Mm. And I'd get up I was terribly losing my sleep because I would get up and go around and listen at all the doors. And nobody was breathing like that. Absolutely nobody. My, my dad would be snoring away, you know, and the, the little ones, they didn't make any noise. You just sent them down and they were like rocks lying there till morning. So I discovered that I could make it stop by saying the Lord's Prayer. And, uh, you know, I was... Uh, my family were devout Lutherans, you know, and so I, I thought, well, I might as well try. I tried it one night because I was just really kind of getting freaked out and scared, and I did not tell my parents or anybody about it because I really figured they would think I was cuckoo. So I tried it, and it stopped it immediately, and it happened the same. The next night, I waited. The breathing started up <sighs> like that. And I prayed the Lord's Prayer again, not out loud. I was just praying it in my head, and it, it, it was enough to stop it. 
So I hope I'm not disappointing your visitors or listeners who are expecting the, the beast, but I'll get to that in a second. So no, that, almost that, up- I was I was wanting to touch on every aspect. So you cover everything from cryptids to paranormal and all. Right. So I was getting ready to ask you to tell well, me a paranormal story. So this actually fit right in. Well, you haven't heard the ending. The, here's the ending and the big kicker to this. So because I had so many brothers and sisters, that little tiny bedroom, it was everybody's shot to get their own room. So we'd switch. One person would have it for six months to two years, and then the next one would, run, would move in, and then the next one. And so my younger sister, who was four years younger than me was the next one who got to use that bedroom. It was her turn. I kind of thought about telling her and then I didn't. And (laughs) the next morning, she came down the stairs, down to the the kitchen where we were all sitting eating breakfast. And she looked, she was a mess. You know, her hair was all messed up. She, her eyes were all squinty. She said, "I, I couldn't sleep at all. She was really mad. And she looked at me and said, you never told me the picture breathes. (laughs) <laughs> just like that and so and i was 13 so she would have been like about eight or nine at the time and i said to her well you know i, I took her uh, heaping abuse for a, a minute or so and then i said i found out all you have to do is say the lord's prayer just say the lord's prayer and it will stop and it did she tried it and it did that's awesome let me ask you about a couple of books your haunted wisconsin book that you did a while back i'm not going to pin you down because i'm sure you've got so many books out you can't remember exactly what's in each one i would i would hope you couldn't but tell me one of your favorite stories about wisconsin when it comes to haunting or paranormal that you've researched in the past whether it's in that book or not oh wow there's so many see that's a tough question because there's just so much weirdness very strange stuff in wisconsin i'd almost have to say bigfoot because it's what i ended up having the most contact with and that i was the most surprised about and Wisconsin, people, when people think of Bigfoot, they think back out in Seattle or Northern California where it started. But there are lots and lots of Bigfoot in the Midwest, particularly. And I think they followed the Great Lakes up to, you know, there are, of course, so many in, in New York State. But what happened back in that newspaper office when people started sending me their stories about when they contacted me, I don't think I mentioned, they, they would say something like, don't make fun of these things. I've seen them, you know, and uh, this and this happened to me. And a lot of people were sending me not just the dogmen or the upright canines, which is my preferred terminology for it, but publishers tend not to think that's a sexy story <laughs> to be t- or story names, so they don't use it. But the upright canines were not the only things people were, were reporting. They were reporting a different type of dog that was huger. It was the size of a pony or Shetland pony. Right, And this is right from the beginning when none of this was published. So they, they were reporting these separate big dog-like creatures that were not, sometimes they'd be on all fours, but they chased cars and bumped them off the roads. And I didn't know what to do with those reports. So I kind of filed them in a thing and they're in my latest book. I call them now dire dogs, not dire wolves, but dire dogs because they were big and aggressive and they're still out there. So um, so I knew those were there, but they also started reporting Bigfoot sightings and encounters and quite specifically to the places. And a lot of them were right, really not that far from uh, where I lived in southern Wisconsin. And southeastern Wisconsin has a big date forest range um, called the Kettle Moraine. And the kettles are big scoop, scoop marks taken out of the ground by the last glacier. And they reminded people of those straight-sided kettles that you'd hire o- or hang over a fire. And so they got called kettles. And then around them were lower places called moraines. And these things are just full of wildlife. And Bigfoot, I've seen them. You know, I've seen 
I've seen them there in that area several times and had other um, adventures. And that's the most shocking thing. I had, Before I actually saw the creature itself, I had one that I was walking alone by myself. The place we lived in um, had like acre lots, and a lot of them were people who were gone during the weekend. And, and most everybody had left that weekend that I had this incident. It was real quiet. It was about 7 p.m. in August. Couldn't hear, you could you could hear a pin drop. It was that quiet in the woods and just really nice weather. There had been no storms for a couple of weeks. And I had this urge to, to bang uh, a stick on a tree, and I did for fun. I I won't go into the whole thing about why I did that, but I did. And to my shock and surprise, because I didn't think, I thought that was kind of a big joke. Bigfoot hunters did that at first. To my surprise, I got a knock back. And to my great surprise and fear, it was really close. It was like, I, I don't know, 100, 150 feet or something like that. Something was up in this oak tree. It was not an old oak tree. It was a very beautiful, uh, full of leaves, nice-sized oak tree growing up out of that kettle. And I was so shocked. I thought, well, that must have been a coincidence. And so I, I hit with my stick again and got another return. And then I was really baffled. And then I thought to myself, well, either it's a person, which why would there be a person? This was set in like a a deep five-acre acreage that was so sloped downward it was unbuildable. That's why it still existed. I said, it's either, it's whatever is doing that um, because it was shaking the tree. It was not just pinning something. It was shaking the tree a little bit. I said, has an opposable thumb. So that leaves human and Bigfoot. And I really didn't know what to do exactly. So I hit the tree again. And at that, I heard this sharp splitting of wood, just like when uh, in a snowstorm, when a tree gets too full of ice and the branches break off. That's what happened. Only the branch was twisted. It was completely twisted. And I could see that it was fresh white wood from where I was standing. I was that close. And I thought, I've got to know what it is. Though either thing would have probably been very bad for me. But I had to know. So I hit with I hit with my board one more time. And this time, whatever was up in there completely tore the branch off of the tree, dropped it 40 feet down into the kettle. And I still, I couldn't see it because the tree was that, uh, it was that young that it was very full of foliage. And we'd had a very uh, wet, wet summer. And so there was a lot of, uh, everything was very moist and, and it shouldn't have had been able to be uh, split like that. And that's when I knew what it was because a human could not possibly have done it. You can see pictures of this if you go to lindagodfrey.com and on the homepage, there's a little search box up on the right and type in Bigfoot Branch and it'll show you all the pictures. I went back about an hour later. I rounded up a friend of mine and her daughter and we went down there and we measured that branch was 35 feet long, 8 inches in diameter. There were no wood pricker holes. There were no saw marks. The wood was beautiful white grain and we could smell a skunky smell around it. That was the only aberration. And at one point, it growled at us, and my friend's daughter actually saw the Bigfoot. Mm. So I, I, I didn't see one until later, but at that time, she actually saw it. It was down in the adjacent kettle running behind some uh, bushes. And she said, and this was a 20-year-old uh, gal who really had no idea about Bigfoot at all or what it was like or anything. And I asked her if she could tell me how it walked. And she said, well, she said it was going fast, but it was like a, um, she, she described it for us. And the, the Bigfoot, when it walks or, or runs, I'm sure many of your listeners know this, it, its head doesn't bop up and down like humans because its legs are put together differently. It has more of a smooth gait. And so we knew 
we knew what we had experienced there. And I'll tell you, it changes your view of the world. So let me ask you this. You've done stories on Bigfoot, uh, wolfmen, werewolves, the uh, dogmen of Michigan. Your opinion, are they all connected in some way? It's. I think it's really possible. Be, you know, it's, it's something that so far we can't prove, but so many of the the great investigators that I've followed who either have passed away, like John Keel, or um, just kind of stopped, stopped working or whatever, have had the same idea that after a while you notice that where there's one strange thing, there probably are others. UFOs and lights seem to go together with unknown big furry creatures. Um, you know, it's very seldom that they're seen by themselves. Now, you will find some areas of the country where you don't have a lot of vegetation or many lakes or anything like that. And then you get some things that tend to be even even weirder. And I don't know if they're all related or not. But um, I, I tend to think that there's there's a possibility backed up by scientific research of our um, nuclear physicists who are, you know, just coming up with sensational answers to the true nature of, of matter and non-matter and that they believe there are other dimensions or places to go, even though we don't know if we could fit into them, probably not. We'd probably be killed if we stepped into one because, right. you know, you have to be going on faith that you weren't, you know, going to be encountering demons or nothing or um, be fried to a crisp or who knows what, what could happen. But they're there. So, and, and then there, are, there are lots of other reasons too. But to me, it makes sense that kind of like the, the ghost type of theory, Whereas people will see a ghost of a human, and it will it will look really human, but you know there's nothing really there. And so if that happens to humans, and we don't know what the ghosts are, are they just electromagnetic fields? Are they something that can interact with our brains, which are actually conceived now by scientists to be quantum computers in essence, mm-hmm. even though you know they're not like made of plastic and light metal there there they somehow it said can interact with our human consciousness so that things we are meditating about or thinking about can be produced or at least images of them produced and it's sort of a projection is is what's described because um there are some things that are just pure projection and then there's the idea and i'm just talking about a whole raft of of theoretical things that you can that i've gained from reading these different things in my own experiences there are things that appear to be completely solid flesh and blood and then they fade away you know that happens quite quite often more than you would think that people report something like that or they'll see there'll be tracks that stop in the middle of a snow for of a snowfield and then they just end right out there mm-hmm. and uh, some of those can be explained by the animal play stepping into its own prints as it goes along but I, to me that doesn't cover very many of them so and the other thing is that one of my own observations just thinking about this is that almost the, the human body is powered by an energy force and we know it's not all just, there, there's something more than just bone, muscle, and, and parts of our body. There's there's something in there keeping that body coherent. And that, me, that makes me think that perhaps there are things that, like our Native American, early indigenous people felt that some of these creatures could be solid on Earth and then lighten up in the, I'm trying to think. Of, I hate to use technical words that I know because I, I feel feel stupid that I'm not a scientist. But let's just say that they everything is made up of of waves and particles, 
And how far apart those things are determines the thickness of what you are looking at in this world. If they have a way to widen the space between those particles, they would become, maybe they could walk through a tree. Maybe they could, you know, just disappear. Uh, The Native Americans, and I've talked to elders from various tribes, I don't claim to have talked to all of them, but the ones I have talked to have said, yes, these creatures, the Bigfoot, the Wolfman or Dogman, they, they all know what these things are. They are primarily spirit creatures and they can come from the spirit world, and they come through fresh bubbling springs. And uh, that's how they come and get around in this world as, as they want to. And if, some, say, somebody tries to shoot them or they realize there's something happening that's danger to them or that would they would be captured by humans, which is the last thing in the world they want, they can get out of there and then come back when they wish. You know, just the simplest illustration for something like that is realizing that, to me, it makes perfect sense that energy could be on a sliding scale of density. And that, for instance, uh, when it's when you're examining sound, sound has a high end and a low end. You know, it's got the infrasound and the ultrasound. There's always a sliding scale between them. If it weren't that way, then every time we heard sound, it would be either a big, deep, boomp sound or a very, very high sound and nothing in between, and that doesn't make sense. Same with color, same with light. We're on these sliding scales, and it just makes so much more sense than thinking there's only this solid thing that I can feel because I'm a human with my senses, you know. It just seems, oh, like very, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Well, thinking thinking a lot more of ourselves than than we have the right to think, if, if, if that's all there is. So let me ask you this, and I hadn't intended on asking you this, but it fits in with what you're saying. And uh, since you've investigated so many of these different types of sightings, I want to get your insight, or, or if you've experienced this, I should say. I believe it was John E.L. Tenney that told mm-hmm. me that in a lot of the Bigfoot sightings that he had investigated or had talked to people about, that a number of these had encountered like a sonic boom before their sighting. And they didn't even think about it most of the time. As they were recounting their story, eventually it would just come up, but it wasn't something they thought was a big deal. But these things kept coming up in different sightings. Is that something you've experienced in, in the investigating you've done? Um, I can't I can't say that I've had anybody report that to me exactly that I can recall right off the bat. And I'm sure within my books there's... There's examples because just about everything you could think of happens at some point. But it doesn't surprise me because um, what people, what I've heard people mani- talk about is manifesting the creature, wh- whatever it is, manifesting the opposite. Instead of the big sonic boom, there's an absence of sound. Everything goes quiet. It's like somebody laid a sound blanket over the whole thing. And sometimes that will be signified by colors in the air. The atmosphere will turn golden or light green. And so, um, in a way, I think that complements what what he has come up with. And perhaps, you know, there are some that need to be on that low deep end and some that need to be in the higher. Uh, maybe that has something to do dialing in where they're going. Yeah, makes sense. I, I, I don't know. But, yeah, I just think the way the universe has is built, if you look at it, there's never any place where it's all hard, all dark, or all light and all soft. Maybe they're there, but, you know, we're shown the in-between, I think, most of the time. I agree. I agree. I want to ask you about your most recent book, I Know What, what I Saw. Give me a little bit of insight about 
that book and maybe share a story and then um i'll let you get on with your evening i can't i could keep you on here all night so <laughs> well i can come back oh, i will definitely have you back on oh thanks um i know what i saw was a book that my editor who was then at Tarcher penguin asked me to do he he's, was a great editor because he would suggest things but not really tell me how to do them you know that was up to me but he said i want you to do a book for me that would talk about the ancient myths, you know, all of the half-man, half-animal creatures that we see in the old thousands-of-year-old civilizations in their artwork. Compare that to modern popular stories like Slender Man, Hat Man, those kinds of things, the killer clowns. And see if you can find, see what, if you find more relationships between these creatures and the very old mythology or the, whether the, uh, there are more characteristics that would match up the newer types of things with those creatures. So in other words, is there a base, is there a basis for connecting upright walking mammals and other things, things that look like E.T., whatever, for connecting them with the ancient legends. You could sum it up in which came first, the monster or the myth, is basically the uh, how I would look at it, putting it in, in easy terms. So that was what I did. It was happened to take me three years to do it because um, during the time I was writing this book, we decided to sell our house, and then the buyers couldn't move when we were supposed to because the, the mom had had a, a fluke accident, which is another weird story I won't go into. But anyway, so we ended up having to stay in a hotel for a, a while, which was just, it was kind of a disgusting place. That was going on. My mother was passing away from Alzheimer's at that time, and so I was trying to spend time with her. And anybody who's had that experience, yeah. you know, knows kind of what you go through. Horrible. And we just, yeah, it, it is. And then we had just gotten her taken care of, and she had she had passed. And then her only brother and my uncle, my only uncle on, on either side, he began to um, exhibit the the symptoms, and I happened to be his health power of attorney, and he passed away, and then we had to get rid of, he had a lot, lot, lot of stuff. But he ended up contributing greatly to my work because we didn't know this, but although he was a World War II veteran living in a little mobile home in a park, he had saved up some money. And even though I have six younger brothers and sisters, you know, it was nice a nice enough boost that we could each do a project or or something, you know. And I realized that I could make a movie because I have another asset, which is a son who went to the Art Institute of Chicago majoring in film. And that's one of the chief expenses. And so I had this small inheritance from my uncle. We used that to finance the movie. And it, as it turns out, there's a place in Wisconsin that has huge numbers of mountain lion scene for the past couple of decades but somebody in everybody's family has seen one or two the weird thing and and we're talking at least 150 lions seen in this time okay and in this tiny town and around the maybe an 18 mile radius around it they were all seen and well over half of them are black black mountain lions are not supposed to exist there's supposed to be no such thing as a black panther which gets into tech, biotech technical things but there they were and there was one scene a black one scene just 
last year in March. So they're still being seen. And right at people's houses, that one went through a guy's backyard right at the edge of town. So are all of these people hallucinating? I don't think so. And they could not get any official organization to come and look at them or they showed them, tell them, and they were told time after time after time, no, you know, you you saw a household kitty cat or it was a weasel that was one. I mean, if you, <laughs> if you can imagine. So I felt like, and, and also it's next to the most unusual geological formations in Wisconsin, the Driftless Area, which is where that great, great glacier that I talked about before split and missed. It went around it for some reason. And so it looks like Montana. There's this area of, of uh, mid-central western Wisconsin that looks like you're in Colorado or somewhere. It's perfect mountain lion habitat. There are rivers and streams and, you know, canyons and deep valleys. It's beautiful. And that was where my uncle had grown up playing in the rock caves and where he had um, he had some land there for a while. So I said, well, I could make a movie and we could show how beautiful that land is and let people give their testimonies on it and then you know maybe it would pique some interest and people would stop telling people they didn't know what they were seeing so that's what we did and it took us about 18 months on a micro shoestring and then about um, six weeks ago in the beginning of march we actually won the prize for best documentary at the midwest weird fest film festival in eau claire wisconsin awesome so yeah it was pretty awesome and Dedicate everything dedicated, of course, to to my uncle and also to um, a man from Hillsboro. That's the name of the town. Who was the newspaper editor, just like I was. When people started saying they were seeing mountain lions everywhere, and so it was kind of like deja vu all over again. That was just so amazing to me. And he had gotten the same reaction from from everybody. But I dedicated one of the books to him, and then he worked as our uh, field assistant, field production assistant for the movie. Steve Stanick is his name. And so it's just kind of amazing how everything came full circle. And it was like it was all meant to be. And that's where we are now. Awesome. And what, what's the name of that documentary? Oh, yeah, I should tell you that. It's called Return to Wildcat Mountain. And Hillsborough does have an actual Wildcat Mountain right outside of it. And it was referring to the fact that they're all coming back east from where they they've been pushed back to the Rockies and to... Arizona, that area, and they're coming back. Uh, but then the um, the the second part of the title is Wisconsin's Black Cat Nexus, N E X U S, and that you know we we go through trying to explain what they could be, trying to figure out what they. Oh, and then just this last week, it's been kind of going. The one of the number one things people are watching on TV is that Tiger King series. We yeah. had no idea that that was going to that it existed or that it would be out about the same time as our film, as our documentary film. But I, I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but there's a, a man in Florida who had he was running kind of a seedy, uh, I think would be a good word to, to put to it, big animal rescue farm type of thing. And somebody made that into a series about the same time. So that that was very weird. And people are people have been writing to me. The, the man who owns the, the animal farm up in... Rock Falls, which is very close to the Driftless area, very close to where this all had occurred and all the sightings had been seen. He has been quick to explain that he has nothing to do with the Florida one because um, there's a lot of right. you know stuff going on there I won't get into. But so, I mean, even that has 
come around and been something that could be important. It may bring more people to see the Hillsborough type of mountain lion infestation. And and then hopefully that there will be a discourse between officials and the seers, the witnesses, the people who encounter these things, because they're there and everybody's going to have to deal with them one way or the other. So, yeah, that, and you can, again, the lindagodfrey.com, and I know you're going to put these names down, but lindagodfrey.com has the information. In fact, I just published a short story on that on that man who was, who was in Florida versus the Hillsborough one and, and put in a couple of, of film clips. Um, and the film is available now, I have to say, on streaming. There's a place where you can you can hit, the, just go to lindagodfrey.com, and there's both a, a homepage where you can find out about it and also return to Wildcat Mountain. And you can find either of those there and see how to order them if you'd like. Notice I got that in the ending, but thanks for letting <laughs> me get that in. Linda, it's been an absolute pleasure. It's been one of my favorite interviews that we've done in almost four years of doing this show, and I can't thank you enough for coming on. Oh, you're welcome. And thanks to all your listeners, too. I know it takes a little bit of work to follow me around in these stories, but I really appreciate it. Oh, it's no problem, and and I thought it was absolutely great. I love that we touched on a little bit of everything, and I know everybody else will as well. Well, thank you so much. Well, thanks again for having me. It was very lovely. All right, dear. Thank you so much, and I appreciate it, and we'll talk to you soon. Okie doke. She is so much fun. Yeah, she is. Man, just, I think her life is so interesting. And she goes 100 miles a minute. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> and kudos for her writing all those books and everything. Well, that, and she's got the documentary she yeah. put out. And yeah, she's constantly putting back into yes. the cryptozoology. She field, is so. very, she's a very interesting person to listen to. Now. For those of you who liked her, we're going to follow this up. For no, All you people who say we don't do any crypto stuff or cryptid stuff or cryptozoology. Look, back-to-back weeks. Next week, we've got Steve Cole. Yep. You've seen him on on all the uh, Bigfoot shows. He's like one of the Bigfoot experts. Well, he'll tell you not to use the word Bigfoot expert because he doesn't believe in it. Because, But once again, I, I get schooled every time I deal with Steve Cole. <laughs> So we've talked about Steve a few times on the show where I talk about, and I brought it up to him about how I asked him one time at Scarefest out back. Uh, we were just sitting there talking. I asked him, made the mistake of saying, hey, do you think it's possible Bigfoot could be an alien? And I got a lecture of my life. Mm-hmm. And I thought I thought um, that I was felt like I was like a kindergartner getting schooled. That's right. You better so, recognize, buddy. <laughs> and so I made the same mistake by calling him a Bigfoot expert. So. <laughs> <laughs> he really is one of one of my favorite people, though. So yeah. I absolutely love him. And you guys, if like I said, if you're if you're Bigfoot fans, you already know who he is. Oh yeah. So this will be back to back weeks with Linda Godfrey and and Steve Cole. So how cool is that? That's amazing. All right, we'll see you guys next week. Love ya.